Amen. Please be seated. And please turn in your Bibles to Acts chapter 2. Again, it is on the insert with an outline for you as well. We have been studying the day of Pentecost in Acts chapter 2, the day the Holy Spirit came and empowered those disciples, over 120 people there ready and waiting, uh, empowered them uh, to be Christ's witnesses. And uh, many others, hundreds of others, were watching and did not believe. So Peter preached a sermon, and the Lord brought many of them to faith, and they were baptized. What we have in the passage now before us is the aftermath, uh, what happened in the weeks and months to come after. It's a, it's a characterization of what those Spirit-filled Christians look like in community. You could say this is about what the Spirit-filled church ought to look like. Now, not exactly. There are... This is a description of how it happened early, but certainly you can draw characteristics out of this and see how this would apply to a church that's spirit-filled, led by God and His Word, and it's encouraging. It's one of my favorite passages uh, when we consider the church's mission. What is the vision that God has given us as a church? And I don't mean like by way of a dream, but rather just picturing if the church lives out what it's called to live out the means of grace that God gives us, if we practice those, we engage in those as a church, what would that look like uh, for this community, this church community, and then anyone that God would give us uh, the ability to influence? It's a wonderful picture of what God did in those early days and what he has done in, in other ways or in micro ways throughout history since then in various places where his local churches are. So with that, please hear as I read God's holy word. And always remember as we read from Scripture, This isn't man's word. This is um, God-breathed. This is inspired. And so therefore, because it comes from God um, directly, we can understand it to be inerrant. We can trust it completely, and we know it's with authority that we read this passage. It comes with the authority of God, and so we come to it looking for direction to our lives. Acts 2, starting at verse 42, and I'll stop at verse 47. And they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. And many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. And all who believed were together and had all things in common. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved. Let's bow together as I lead us in prayer. Lord God, please send your spirit this morning in a special way to illuminate your word that we might know the meaning of this text and how it impacts our lives. Lord, as we read and consider this passage from your holy word, please uh, bring us to see how you are working in a similar way in our midst. The same time as we contemplate this text, please give us an honesty and a conviction to see how we as individuals need to grow, and even we as a church, a fellowship, need to grow. I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen. 
There's no shortage of books on what a healthy church looks like or what are the characteristics of a church. Just in recent years, and I have many of these on my shelf, um, the program I'm in had me read many of them, and I think these are good resources that every age of the church should write upon, but it is amazing how much there is on this topic. What is a healthy church is one book. Autopsy of a deceased church. After a church closed, someone went in and tried to figure out what happened. Simple church. Slow church. These are book titles. Purpose-driven church. Comeback churches. One size doesn't fit all. Bringing about the best in any size church. Real good church. These are real names. The gathered and scattered church. Church unique. Disappearing church. Sticky church. I don't know what that's about, but that came up in uh, the search. Center church. Several of these I am aware of. Uh, Why men hate going to church. That's the name of the book. Reaching people under 40 while keeping people over 60. Being a church for all generations. For us. I'm a simple guy. I really am. Our desire is to be a spirit-filled church. A church that's alive and vibrant. A church that is dynamic and full of energy. There may be no better passage in the scriptures about a spirit-filled church than the one we have before us. What does a spirit-filled church look like? When you see these, this description we have in these few short verses, a spirit-filled church is clearly hungry for the means of grace. The primary means of grace, the word of God. We read it in the catechism question. A spirit-filled church is also a loving and gracious church towards one another. And that works its way out outside the community as well, but it has to start first in the household of faith. A spirit-filled church is joyful in worship and in fellowship. That word fellowship comes up over and over again because we share in Christ and then we share in each other's lives as we seek these things. A spirit-filled church is also, you can see by the last verse, evangelistic in practice. It's attractive to the world. Those in the world that the Father calls out to himself are attracted by what they see in the church. What does a spirit-filled church look like? Let's walk through the passage together and see first that a spirit-filled church is hungry for the means of grace. The means of grace that were listed in that catechism question taken from the scriptures. Verse 42, and they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, that's one of them, and the fellowship, that's what unites it all, to the breaking of bread, that's a reference to the participation in the Lord's Supper, not just their fellowship in sharing hospitality, it's that as well, and the prayers. So the apostles' teaching at that time, we're talking about the Old Testament and what they were receiving as revelation from God, eventually it becomes the New Testament. So it's the Scriptures. So they're devoted to the Scriptures, the fellowship, the commonality between each other, and to the breaking of the bread. In the verses before, they were baptized. So the sacraments are included there. And the prayers. More on that in a moment. But in verse 42, the Spirit came and caused a spiritual hunger. This church that you see demonstrated in Acts is because the Spirit came. It's because the Spirit provoked it. It wasn't by following rules or, or a certain formula or certain practices that it became that. Now, there's things we engage in, no question. Uh, but understand that the fruit of this that we see evidenced, it's because the Spirit's working in it. If we want to know if the Spirit's working in our lives or in our church, 
ask ourselves a question. Are we hungry for God's means of grace? Means of grace meaning the tools he gives to grow spiritually. Are we hungry for those things that grow us in him? Um, Ask yourself that personally and ask ourselves that corporately. Now, you go through dry spells. There's no question. All of us have experienced it. Churches can experience it. Sometimes, and probably in our culture, it's because we're just too busy. Um, We forget how much we need the means of grace because we're going so fast and we get numb to the, we get a bit distant from the sense of our need for it. And we can go a long time that way and it's bad for us. We know that. But it is a good litmus test for us. Are we hungry for the means of grace? That's the first feature of the spirit-filled church we see in the book of Acts. How do we rate our spiritual health? Test your desire for the spiritual tools God has given to assist your growth. What's interesting is sometimes you can observe a church, especially in America, and we could say, wow, it's growing fast. It seems like everybody wants to go there. It's got all these programs and so forth. It could actually be very dry. They could be filling in the means of grace with other things, and they're attractive for a time, but eventually they leave you malnourished. So we shouldn't always judge on the basis of the numbers or the vibrancy we seem to feel it has. Rather, be honest about the analysis of what God says is a test, hunger for the means of grace that are listed there before us. Now, before we go further, look at verse 42, how it starts. They devoted themselves to. So they devoted themselves to this hunger for the means of grace, for the means of grace themselves, the the apostles' teaching the fellowship with each other, um, the prayers that they prayed, the sacraments that God gave them. They devoted themselves, it says in verse 42. Uh, The tense of the verb for devoted themselves here is a continuing verb. It's a continuing action, I should say. So you could say they continually devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and so forth. And devoted means to give oneself to. They gave themselves to these things. Uh, devoted means they gave priority over many other things to these things. They said no to some things so that they would not lose the order, the right order of things. They recognized how spiritual growth, that is the relationship with God, was the most important feature of their life and would in fact give clarity to the rest of their life. If they were devoted to these things, the whole of everything else that keeps us busy would be seen more properly. In this sense, our spiritual life should not be thought of as separate from our work or our family or our hobbies. Our spiritual life is really the center. It's our relationship with God, our fellowship with God. And then our fellowship with others who are in God helps us keep this focus. And now we properly understand the place of our vocation, the place of our family, the place of our hobbies, and so forth. It really is central to it. If you keep spiritual out here like it's one of the different components— You'll never understand the purpose of the rest of your life. People wrestle with this all the time. I'm a Christian. I believe in Christ. I trust in him. I go to church, but I don't know how it relates to the rest. And so by devoting ourselves to the apostles' teaching, to fellowship, to the sacraments, to prayer, then we start to see what's the most important feature of the universe, and it informs everything else. And the other things take their proper place, and they're important. But they're in light of this. And so the Spirit-filled church, as a corporate body, has a hunger for the Word, a hunger for the sacraments, a hunger for the means of grace in general, because it orders everything else. 
They're devoted, continually devoted to this. Spiritual growth by God's means was their major consideration. You know, this word devoted, it sometimes translates in our society well when we think of people who, are, who train so, so diligently for something. I was reading on Jordan Spieth, who's one of the best golfers today, a uh, picture of continual devotion. It's not just that he plays multiple rounds of golf every day and works on particular shots and the actual golf skills, but his, there was a, an article about what he does to discipline himself or devote himself. That's the right word, devote himself to his craft. He makes sure, for instance, in sleep, he gets eight hours every night. He keeps the same hours, even when he's in tournaments, he makes sure that he's in bed at the right time so he gets eight full hours for recovery. He even has, wears a monitor at night that tells him how much of it is deep sleep, which is important. Um, as far as general wellness, he has certain music that he likes to listen to to get into a certain rhythm. Um, the workout environment that he has is very careful. Um, as far as how he drinks and keeps hydrated and so forth, these things are all part of it. His fitness, he does the circuit training in addition to what he does already on the golf course. Um, he has a 30-minute warm-up every time. He won't hit a ball until he's warmed up. 30 minutes is a long time. We think, yeah, you have to extensive warm-up, but 30 minutes is, is a long time. Um, he has activities that are listed down. His nutrition's interesting, too. He lists all the food he eats. That alone would make me not want to be devoted to his craft, but his craft, he eats granola, he eats almonds, he eats pe- uh, pecans, he eats organic honey, unsweetened coconut, virgin coconut oil, ground vanilla beans, cinnamon, and a little bit of sea salt he adds in there too. For dinner, it gets worse. Asparagus, broccoli, sweet potatoes, he's just supposed to be nutrient-dense. He's so devoted to his craft that he's even crafted his whole lifestyle around it. And we can think of people like this. Maybe you're like this in some area of your life where you've just got it all absolutely spelled. That's devoting oneself. Verse 42, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship of the breaking of bread and the prayers. Let's look at them separately very swiftly as some of them come up again in the text. First, devoted to the apostles' teaching. This is another uh, a synonymous term for scripture at this point. The apostles were the New Testament prophets. The Holy Spirit was working through them, and they were penning Scripture at this time, the Gospels and the Epistles being written. We have those in their concluded form. So for us, it's the Word of God. That's what it's referring to. They continually devoted themselves to God's Word. Um, That Where the Spirit reigns, a love for God's Word reigns, so said Kent Hughes. And he's right. That's an evidence. People are hungry for the Word where the Spirit is at work. Colossians 3, verse 16, let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness to God in your hearts. Also, they were continually devoted to fellowship. More on this in the next point, but that has to do with a unity between believers. Um, The word is koinonia, you've probably heard of it. Koine is common. The Greek language in The New Testament is common Greek, Koine Greek, as opposed to classical Greek. Koine Greek, common Greek, common koinonia is we have things in common. We share life together. We engage with one another. We have fellowship first with God and now with those who are united to God by faith in Christ. Also, they devoted themselves to the sacraments. I I make this point on the breaking of bread statement because we already know that they were baptized into the church. And then there's this reference to the breaking of bread. And most scholars agree when it's used like this, 
Yes, it does mean that they had hospitality, fellowship with one another, uh, feast together, but it's understood from documents we have that at the end of these meals, they would reserve some of the elements to then practice the Lord's Supper. Remember, this isn't too far from when the Last Supper actually was, and so it's in their stark remembrance, they're together and they're fellowshipping, they're eating, and they pause, and they participate in the Lord's Supper. It's part of the whole of their gathering. So the breaking of bread, the way it's listed here, indicates something more than just that they had meals together. It's that plus something more. They're devoted to this means of grace that God gave for remembrance of the heart of the gospel, Christ's death for us. And they were continually devoted to prayer. Uh, Simply, prayer means to go to God, to praise Him, and ask Him for things. But it says the prayers. Did you notice that? The prayers. It's very likely there were repetitive formulas, prayer formulas, much like we'll repeat some of the same ones you've done before. They're still meaningful. You think of what they mean and what they say, and they repeat those. And in the early church, there were several of these, most likely incorporated into Scripture in places we don't even recognize now because they're part of the Bible. But the apostles taught those and said those, and the prayers could have been those kinds of recitations of portions of Scripture about who God is, praising God, could be Psalms, any number of things. Prayer, the prayers, they're devoted to those things. There's a simplicity in this for us in the church. Whatever else we may be doing, how does it look like this? This hunger for the means of grace promotes something. Verse 43, we see it. An awe came upon every soul. Now, don't don't get this out of order because in the apostolic age, there were still being these miracles and wonders and signs. Not saying there aren't miracles done today. Surely they are. But the commonality of them in the apostolic age, in order to prove to people the apostles were prophets, and they did these wonders and signs. But notice the order of verse 43. After verse 42 says what they're devoted to, awe came upon every soul, and many wonders and signs were being done. So their awe came from their study, from their fellowship, from their participation in the means of grace. They were in awe that God was present with them there. They were in awe that they were growing in their spiritual walk. That's what they were in awe. And then, in addition to this, many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. We should be in awe with God doing spiritual work in any of us. That's a supernatural thing. We don't need wonders and signs. We have them on record for us, at least in Scripture. But just spiritual maturity alone should give all of us a sense of awe about what God can do and what he is doing. Their devotion to the means of God's grace became the foundation for everything else in their community life as a church and their effectiveness. It's a timeless principle and practice. When you hear me or other leaders in the church or members of the church say, Redeemer wants to be an ordinary means of grace church, what we mean, style aside, personality aside, all the, we want to be about the means of grace, the word prayer, the sacraments, the fellowship. We want to keep the main things, the main things, because they're all about Christ, and this is the model for the church that's timeless. It's ageless. It transcends all cultures. That's what we ask God to give us, is his spirit so that we could be that kind of a church. We all want to be those kind of people. Also, notice in verse 44 and 45, what else a spirit-filled church is. It's loving and gracious towards one another. It starts to unpack this idea of fellowship. True Christian fellowship 
is a key catalyst for spiritual growth. In other words, you can't go into your closet and practice the means of grace. They're not given just for you as individual, an individual. They're given to us as the church. And we as individuals have the Holy Spirit working in us and affecting us. But then in community, it's meant to make that even more effective for, the, for all of us as we live this life together in, in, in all the ways that we can. Verse 44, and all who believed were together and had all things in common, that word koine again. And they were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. Now there's a unique feature that happens there that isn't trans, doesn't translate into the ages. This is descriptive of the church at this time. They're living in the Roman Empire. Most of them, these people here, all of them really, were Jewish proselytes to Christianity. So they're already on the outs for being Jews in Rome. Now they're Christians in Judaism, and they're really on the outs. People suffered early on, lost property, lost vocations. Many were um, dispersed from other places in Israel and even around the near world. And so they were, had need. And now they have Christ in common like this. They didn't think anything of giving to everybody as they had need. Keyword as they had need. And they shared their stuff with each other. The church was so close in these early days. Now, to be clear, Acts is describing what the church was doing. It's not prescribing uh, that in the whole for the church to follow. Although it is true, as people have need, we are to come together and help with this. Now, it's not saying we don't offer, or we, this is some kind of communism or collectivism. Um, we know they had homes still. They still had their own possessions. Verse 46 says they broke bread in their homes. Um, so they were still owning things. James Boyce says it well. The early Christians shared their possessions not because they were communists or socialists, not because they were forced to share their things, but for a far better reason. They shared their goods because they were generous. And they were generous because they had learned generosity from God himself, the ultimate in generosity, giving his own son. That sets the pace for our willingness to be generous with each other, especially as we have everything in common in Christ. And then therefore, as needs arise, we can help bolster one another. The point is the people were so close that they thought nothing of sharing their stuff with other believers. That's the beautiful picture we have of a spirit-filled church. The times were such that these Christians who suffered would need the support of others, and there wasn't any hesitation to take care of one another. The unity as believers was too important to allow uh, people to go hungry in their midst or to be fall into deep anxiety because they didn't know how to take care of themselves or their families. Spirit-filled church is loving and gracious towards one another. We see this most when times of need arise. How does the church respond? I remember coming to this church uh, 21 years ago, and in that first year I was here, the first summer I was here in 1997, um, the church was, we had maybe 80 people, and I remember uh, sitting in the sanctuary, there was a family who had fallen into hard times and could not make their house payment. They were behind by a couple months. They're pretty new to the church. And no one wants to, especially in our area, no one wants to admit that kind of thing, even though people do struggle with financially all the time, all over, no matter what it may look like on the outside in the community we live in. And they were really struggling. We only had a couple deacons at that time. And we didn't know what to do exactly because our budget was super tight. I remember in those days, there was a few times where the treasurer said, hold your check a couple days later. And that's no joke. And we're just a young, small startup church, just bought the first 10 acres. And so the deacons just decided, and the elders agreed, let's just go to the, the church on Sunday and say we really need to take up an offering that Sunday morning um, to help this family. And the amount was, it was over $2,000 to get them caught up and back to where they needed to be. 
in that morning in the offering, in addition to what people gave normally, people gave more above that. Just, just one, no note went out before, just that morning, uh, announcement, either the pastor gave the announcement or a deacon did, and that day they got enough to help that family. And I thought, you know, we don't have a lot of opportunities because generally speaking, the American church is pretty widely middle class and there's diversity in there, but we don't hear that as much. And in the smaller church, like we were at that time, we were able to really see that tangibly happen. And it happened in many other ways like that. May we always be a church like that. When you give to the deacon's fund offering, it's an active fund that gets utilized. We're bigger now, and part of the difficulty or challenge with that is you don't have as much personal touch, but know as you give to that, it is used for purposes um, that I think fulfill this idea of making sure we take care of anyone who has need in our midst, especially in the household of faith first. That's a sign of a spirit-filled church. Devotion to the means of grace, devotion to each other, and the building of fellowship. This makes for a joyful, worshiping church. Look at verse 46. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. This is a picture, it's a continuum. It starts with their devotion to God's word and his means of grace. It develops into this fellowship we have with each other. And then as this happens day by day, notice the formal and informal nature of their gathering. Attending the temple together. What do they mean, the Jewish temple? They're in Jerusalem. There was a a place in the Jewish temple complex called Solomon's Porch where different sects and groups would meet to have gatherings, usually Jewish ones. And the Christians early on thought of themselves as fulfilled Jews. So they would go to Solomon's porch and have many worship services and, and sing. They would sing psalms in light of who Christ is. Like they, they understood the fulfillment of Psalm 22 was, was, who he was. And so they'd meet together formally at Solomon's porch near the temple, but they would also do so in homes attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes. So they were looking for opportunity to gather for worship. They did it in formal ways and informal ways, at the temple and in their homes. And there's a joy that fills their heart because of their knowledge of Christ and the gospel and their union with each other now. They receive their food with glad and generous hearts. Uh, there's just a, a, a thankfulness to God for what he has provided, the fellowship that he has given them praising and having favor with all the people. Praising God and having favor with all the people. So an outflow of a spirit-filled church is the proclamation of praise unto God. It's the giving credit where it really is due. It's saying out loud, God has given all this. It's the ability to, to just let everyone know it's not about anything we've done. This is all about God's grace. What a beautiful picture of what the Spirit produces for us here, and I hope we recognize it even in our own own lives. Modern application, when you think of how this applies to what a church would look like today. Again, you have to be careful about looking at the outside and saying, well, you're not joyful or, or vibrant or energized if your style doesn't look a certain way. Uh, You know, outward signs are not always the best mechanism for determining the truth of inward reality. When we sing hymns, or when we pray prayers, when we join with one another and we interact with one another, what's on our lips? What are we fulfilled by? Is it God's honor and his glory? Does that give us joy? That'll look various ways. 
but it should be deep-seated. It should be something that the church really senses and wants to tell other people in our worship and in our lives. We want to give credit where it is due because we want people to love God too and have that same relationship. Life is such a rat race when we're trying to get credit for ourselves all the time. It's really about self-worship most of the time. And it's a relief when we realize that is not what life's about because we were not created to be worshipped. We were created to be worshippers. And so a spirit-filled church is joyful in worship and fellowship because it's almost like human beings, we human beings are redeemed and released to do the thing we were supposed to do before the fall, which is to worship God, to give him praise. And so when the gospel comes and people are converted, people come to Christ, they believe on him, they then can realize because of that generosity who God is now and we can give him all the praise. And now all of a sudden it actually, I'll use the word, it actually feels good. It feels good because we're doing what we're supposed to do by design and we're joyous in our worship and in our fellowship. We don't just come here to sit alone and concentrate on our own. We come to join other people. We do joint prayers and readings so we can all hear our voices be one unto God and that gives us strength. That builds us up. That gives us a certain sense of of stability in a waffling world, in a world that's got the wind blowing every way, to come in this time, especially on the Lord's Day, and just get together, be strengthened in Him, stand together, say the things that we know are true, confess our sins because we know we're sinners, and proclaim the gospel message as we hear the words of assurance come, hear it preached, hear it sung, hear it see, see it in the sacraments. This is that joyful worship and fellowship only believers in Christ could know. I think it's John Stott who said, that this word fellowship, in this sense, was invented at Pentecost. It was the first time there was a real joint fellowship across all sorts of lines in commonality with Christ that then brought a unity that's really inexplicable. At least to the world. They can't figure out what it is. I would say one important challenge for us is when we live apart like we do in the in the modern world in suburbia we don't have the church in the neighborhood you just walk to maybe like some of you knew growing up some some live close enough to walk but you know how what i mean find ways all of us have to find ways to get closer together whether it be your home fellowship group that word fellowship is on purpose um being at church activities so we can have these connect points with each other. You know, social media gets a bad rap, and I get it. it. It's a way to be in balance, for sure. But on the other hand, it's here to stay, and it's contributed in many ways to connecting people more. And the more connected we are, the more united we are in our worship and fellowship. That should not be a replacement, by the way, for the other things I mentioned. But it can accent. It can help. Because when we're closer as a community, when we are more joined together in our lives, more aware of what's happening. When we jointly learn the word, we can stay clear about the gospel and its application to the things of our life. We can hold each other accountable more to what should be that center of our life. The early church experienced this, obviously. Pragmatically, it was smaller at that time and a closer location. But this is still the way the epistles describe the church's unity together in closeness. But notice something else in the second part of verse 47, which kind of puts a capstone on what the early church looked like as they experienced this filling of the Spirit in those early days. Verse 47, praising God and having favor with all the people. This last phrase, though, notice what happens as a result. This is what comes from this. 
And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The whole of this episode we're reading of was prompted by what? By the sermon of Peter about the person of Christ in his work. So it's founded on the gospel, the gospel message. All of this comes forth because of that. The gospel message is preached, people become believers, God gives them a hunger for his word, for sacraments, for prayer, for fellowship. Then people see it from outside the church and they say, what's happening? What's going on here? And they're appreciating what they see and they say, well, we're in Christ. Christ is the Lord. He has laid his life down for us. He has paid for our sins with his death on the cross and we believe in him and we have fellowship in each other and his word tells us how we should live in light of it and his sacraments remind us of that sacrifice so we don't get off and stuck on works again that we get back to christ again keeps us focused there and then we get together so we can remind each other of these things and hold each other accountable these things and people say that's something i don't have the world doesn't have and as god calls people to himself he commonly does so by the church's witness in this way and just by showing that fruit that I mentioned, we have evangelistic opportunity to proclaim that gospel and draw people in. Yes, we send mission teams, but we also work at being church, a church in love with the means of grace and watch how God gives us opportunity for proclamation of the gospel. And as it says, the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. This has to be a beautiful thing for the disciples who are becoming apostles. Remember that before Jesus went to the cross, in John 17, he offered this prayer. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word, Jesus prays. He says, I'm not just praying about the disciples or the apostles now, but also for those who would believe based on their word, the apostles' word. That's us. So he's praying for us. He says, I do not ask for these only, but for those also who believe in me through their word, that they all be one. Just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, and they also may be in us, so that the world may believe that you have sent me. Did you hear that? The reason for the unity of the church that Jesus prays for is so that the world will believe that God sent Christ. Jesus goes on in the prayer, the glory that you have given me, I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one. I in them and you in me, and they may be perfectly one, and then he repeats it a second time, so there's no mistake. The reason why he gives this unity to the church, Jesus gives this unity to the church, so that the world may know that you sent me and love them even as you love me. The proclamation of Christ and his work, that's evangelism, that's proclaiming it. The thing that makes people take note of the church's proclamation is the love expressed between believers in the church, because that's supernatural, it can't be natural. People see it. How did that happen? And you proclaim the gospel. The unity of God's people in their whole of their life together is what gives credence to the message delivered from God. Verse 47 again. Praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. The Holy Spirit is the agent who produces a church like we see on display in the book of Acts. But what can we do? We all want to know that. What can we do? The Spirit does it. Well, a key catalyst for being a Spirit-filled church is fellowship with other believers. The fellowship of believers is where the Spirit does his primary saving and sanctifying work. It's here that he does that, with your fellow believers. 
when you're down spiritually, the absolute wrong answer is to avoid believers or fellowship with them. In 1 John 1, 3, that which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too have fellowship with us. And indeed, our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. So if we're in Christ, we'll want fellowship with one another. One of my favorite benedictions that I give, that I say, uh, that when I say it that many times, maybe we don't pause and think of the words, but the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, or I'll start, the love of God and the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ, and then I say, the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is the Spirit-brought fellowship with God that gives us unity with each other, fellowship with each other. The fellowship of the Holy Spirit is unlike any other kind of fellowship. And may that be with you as Christians, because only you can have it. I just got back from our denomination's general assembly. And in those meetings, there's a very strict order about how a meeting goes and how participants can speak. There's a docket to follow, Robert's rules to follow, reports made, motions given, carefully monitored debates. Uh, They follow a very careful decorum. Um, Amendments are sometimes offered to motions, substitute motions, proposed votes taken, lots of them. Um, You know, the moniker of Presbyterian government, uh, governance and polity is to do all things decently and in order. And that's how those meetings look. Uh, When an individual elder wants to stand up and make a statement to the rest of the assembly that's not on the docket, and it doesn't seem to fit a particular action being taken, he may rise and ask for a point of personal privilege. It could get allowed, sometimes it's not, and then he just says whatever he wants to say. That happens from time to time. So it's kind of at that point, or it's that kind of point I'd like to raise at this point, a point of pastoral privilege with you all in light of this sermon. I've been here 21 years, as I mentioned. I've been the senior pastor for 17 of those years. And for this point of personal privilege, after these 21 years of observation, I've never been more convinced for your need to be intentionally engaged in the means of grace. you got to be at church. You cannot expect to grow if you don't come to church. Now, I know you're at church, but not all the time. And I don't care about our numbers. I don't care about the offering number. I just care that you be under the means of grace because you cannot grow without them. And if you think just an hour and a half Sunday morning will do it, it won't. And if whatever you're doing Sunday night or Wednesday or whatever is more important than that, then, then go do it. But be honest about your spiritual dryness. It's not God's fault. It's probably yours. Now, I'm not saying there aren't issues that come into your life that dry you up. I get that. Guess what the answer is, though? Not staying home. It's frustrating pastorally because we love you so much. We would lay our life down for you. But to get that phone call about this dryness and you're never at church. You're never never under the means of grace. You're not in fellowship. You don't have any other friend to call. Why? Is that my fault? No. It's because you didn't do anything to get into that relationship. God doesn't say, pastors, get your people involved so they will do them, follow the means. No. This descriptor is for us, the people of God. We all have to engage in it, and we can't expect it to go well if we don't. If you come to the church, this church or any church, and you like something about the style, of, this is great, they, they actually sing hymns. Wow, this is in the, and if you don't make friendships, in six months you'll go to another church. We could be more friendly, but we all could be more devoted. End of point of personal privilege. The mission of Redeemer I hope you see in the back of your hymnal captures. The mission of Redeemer is to mature as a community of Christians. Community of Christians, there's your fellowship in Christ. Who love to worship their God, that's the worship component of this, study his word, and proclaim his gospel to the world. It's a simple mission, 
And we believe that if we stick to this, we think it's biblical, that God will grant great fruit to this church, but also to the members of this church, that each of us would grow in God's grace. And maybe down the years, the youngest of us says, what a great church that the Lord filled with his spirit. And I hope it's still that way when they're old. Let's close in prayer. Oh Lord, these verses describe a wonderfully spirit-filled church. A church that loved your word and loved each other. I pray that for our church family, that we would experience these same things. Give us devotion to you and to your means of grace. Give us love for one another. Lord, in the midst of our busy and active lives, please give us devotion to cultivating our relationship with you and with others. Help us not to lose sight of what is most important. And day by day, attending the temple together, breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. May this be said of us, O Lord. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.